from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the mailing list so that you always have the latest episode in your inbox every Tuesday and announcements for upcoming live streams. My guest today is a giant in the indie horror community, and his writing career spans over 36 years. He's the king of Southern Fried Horror and has re-released one of his classics in an author's preferred edition. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Ronald Kelly. Welcome to the show. Howdy, Vince. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this sixth day of May 2023. You have quite the reputation in the horror community as a great author, but even more so because of the subgenre you write within. Southern fried horror is not easy to pull off, but you do it with an aplomb that makes it look effortless. I read your recent revival of your book, Fear, the author's preferred edition, and I don't know if I've been that creeped out in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Your slow, visceral descriptions of otherworldly beasts and the way they comport themselves made my skin crawl, and that is not an easy thing to do. So I thoroughly enjoyed the book as well as the two included novellas and consider it an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Absolutely. So, I know the book was originally published a while back, so would you give us a little background on the book's origin and its journey to being re-released in an author's preferred edition? Well, Fear came about around midway through my six-year stretch of writing for Zebra Books. I was sort of struggling with what to write next, and suddenly this idea about a a farm boy traveling to a purely evil county popped into my head, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it just seemed to come to me out of the blue. It was like I woke up one morning and and the setting and the characters and the plot was just fully formed in my mind. And, and I just sat down and started writing it. And I guess it was one of those rare cases where a book practically writes itself. Mm. That's the way it felt at the time. And this was uh, this was 1993. It was published in 1994, but I began writing it in '93. So um, I submitted it to Zebra. They loved it and published it in 1994. And and after that, one thing about mass market publishing back then, you would write a book, it would come out in the bookstores, and then you just went on and wrote another book. I mean, it wasn't like you dwelled on that recent release. You just went on and wrote another book and released another book. So fear just kind of went in the back of my mind and everything. And so, um, you know, I, I stopped writing for 10 years due to the implosion of the horror genre. And when I came back in 2006, I started re-releasing some of the old Zebra books and I had uh, Sinister Grin publications put out a paperback copy of Fear and they had it on Amazon for quite a while, and then they shut their doors, and and it was unavailable for quite a while, for several years, and then I decided to to do this new uh, Authors Preferred edition of Fear with the introduction by Brian Keene and a couple novellas and an afterward by myself. So 
that's how this new edition came about. Well, I'm glad it uh, <laughs> glad it made its way to present day. The book takes place in a rural town in Mangrum County, and as far as I can tell, Mangrum County is fictional. But I know you're from Tennessee, and maybe I'm reaching here, which I have a tendency to do. But I found an article on a woman that was murdered in Dixon County by the name of Leanne Mangrum. Mm -hmm. Does she have anything to do with the name of the county? And is the no. county based on any real location? No, her murder happened in 2002, which was nine years after I wrote Fear. So I don't know where I came up with Bangram County from. But, you know, it's really strange because my mother's side of the family is actually from Dixon County. And uh, so I'd actually drawn a lot from Dixon County in some of my books. Uh, there was a triple murder back in the 1930s in Dixon County, and I based my first novel, Hindsight, on that. And so there's been a lot of uh, murders and disappearances in that county. So, it, you know, when you mentioned the Mankrum case, you know, I was kind of aware of that. And then I went back and researched it and was surprised that it actually happened in Dixon County. So um, in fear, Mangrum County, I mainly based that on my the county I grew up with, which is Cheatham County, which was a neighboring county to Dixon County. And um, the town of Pikesville is based on Ashland City, where I went to high school. And there is the Harper's River runs through Cheatham County, and that's in the book. And there are, like, cliffs with uh, caves in the side of it. And I guess that's where I got the idea for for the snake critter's lair, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well... I love mythology, so I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and his concept of the hero's journey narrative, and mm -hmm. fear is a great example of the hero's journey and uh, basically the monomyth. Do you consciously try to embody that narrative and maybe even outline your stories, or is it purely an organic process that evolves as you write by the seat of your pants, so to speak? I think... Jeb's quest in Fear County was an organic thing in nature. Uh, mm -hmm. I was always a fan of stories like The Odyssey and Lord of the Rings and and books like that, The Wizard of Oz, and, uh, you know, where the underdog goes against overpowering odds to do the right thing you know, and uh, see that justice is done. So I guess that's where I got the idea for Jeb's journey and uh, fear. It just seemed to come natural to me without, you know, really any effort, like writing down a movie that was, you know, playing in my head, you know. Mm -hmm. Is that the way that all your books kind of come to you? Like, I have yet to really meet an author that says, yeah, I have this detailed outline with sub points and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, usually it is. I start with a basic idea and then I sort of flesh it out as I go. When I wrote for Zebra, I did have to turn in an outline. Mm. you know, to get it approved. But sometimes the book didn't turn out like the outline. <laughs> so, but they all, they were always happy with the results. So, you know, I guess it worked out for the best. Was, was Zebra like a mainstream publisher in the sense that we're talking like an advance and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I usually got $2,500 advance on a book and then, uh, after you made that back, you would, you know, start getting royalties, you know, which at first, you know, off one book, you know, the royalties, it wasn't enough to really make a living off of. But once you got several books under your belt and, you know, it became considerable. And I did write full time for the six years I wrote for Zebra. Well, circling back to the book, the uh, story centers around a boy named Jeb whose call to adventure is the possibility of his father and terminally ill grandmother being healed if he can make the trek through Fear County to get to Granny Woman to give him a magical cure, as well as the secret to kill the snake critter to save his love interest, Mandy. So I was going to ask you if you were at all influenced by any fairy tales, but you mentioned Lord of the Rings, The Wizard of Oz, and what else? Uh, the Odyssey. The Odyssey, yeah, the mm -hmm. epic poem. So, yeah, which I probably read in high school. It's probably not anything I would have read on my own. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we had to read it in English, I believe. 
anything uh, more along the lines of a fairy tale. The reason I ask is because Mandy is kind of like your proverbial damsel in distress, and she's, I mean, being held by what would f- could figuratively be considered a dragon. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was a good observation on your part. You know, I could see Jeb as a knight setting out on a quest for, you know, the Holy Grail, mm-hmm. you know, to save his <laughs> beloved from a dragon, you know, which is the snake critter. So, yeah, yeah I, that's a good take on that. And um, I guess I really didn't see it that way when I wrote the book. But uh, lately it seems like I'm realizing a lot of things about fear and connections to other stories that I've read, you know, when I was growing up, including, I guess, including fairy tales, you know, Grimm's fairy tales and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that kind of stuff just uh, sits in your subconscious. What do they call that? The uh, Jung's collective unconscious where all the mm-hmm. archetypes of the character types kind of sit and manifest in the stories we tell and movies we make and so on. It's real interesting how that takes place. But the character that gives him a sort of supernatural aid with his knowledge of Fear County and his music is probably my favorite character, Roscoe Ledbetter. <laughs> now, now, please, tell me I'm right. A black man that sings the blues playing slide guitar with a shot glass with the last name Ledbetter. He's got to be based <laughs> on Hudy William Ledbetter, a.k.a. Leadbelly. Please I, tell me I, I'm right. <laughs> you know, I, I believe you've got it right there. I guess it was a combination of uh, old blues musicians that I kind of made uh, Roscoe out of, you know, like, you know, Lead Belly and Robert Johnson and Blind Lemon Jefferson, you know, singers like that. You know, I remember when I was writing Roscoe's part, I would check out old blues recordings from the library or, you know, find them at uh, flea markets and, and I'd listen to them, especially when I was writing Roscoe's lyrics to his songs, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, so um, Roscoe was he was a really fun character to write. And and I, I'm sure I drew a lot from some of the old blues singers, you know. Yeah. And what was the time period again that this took place in? It was, it was 1946, right after 1946. OK. Yeah. Well, at the beginning of the story, the reader is given a glimpse of what kind of madness takes place in Fear County. Is Fear County just inherently evil, or is the people that migrated there what turned it into what it's become? And if so, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? I think Fear County is just flat-out evil. Uh, There's something about the land itself and its unknown origins that kind of cause it to be that way. You know, I'll be exploring a lot of that in the sequel to Fear. I'm writing right now called Fear Eternal, and... Mm. uh, there may even be a lot of cosmic horror in the new book, you know, that kind of explains where the evil originates from, you know, maybe some otherworldly portals or temporal rifts and stuff like that that kind of unleashed, you know, the various creatures and stuff into this uh, county. So I'm kind of looking forward to exploring that when I really get into it. I'm just several chapters into it right now. Okay. Yeah, I kind of, whenever I think of the term Southern Fried Horror, I kind of consider it to be sort of like a Southern Horror with a few unique little traits. But how would you describe Southern Fried Horror, since you are the <laughs> the man? Well, <laughs> it's just, it's something I grew up with. I mean, my grandmother used to tell me ghost stories and tales of cryptids like, you know, the skunk ape and and stuff like that. And when I started storytelling myself, you know, she was a vocal storyteller. And when I started storytelling through the written word, I kind of drew from her stories and I drew from everything I grew up around all my life. And so I think that's where Southern Gothic storytelling is, you know, is, uh, is you draw from the places you grew up knowing and the people you grew up knowing and, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, so many people, so many authors tell me that there was some, you know, whether it was their mother or grandmother, somebody close in the immediate family that was a storyteller. As far as all of the authors you know, do you find that's kind of a consistent trait? It's just there's 
some uh, exposure to somebody in the immediate family that just attracts them to to writing from listening to their stories. Yeah, I believe that's true because I, I've talked to several writers who had that influence. They had that uh, that family storyteller that really got them interested in listening and, and absorbing family history and ghost stories and stuff like that. And and I had my grandmother and my mother, too, and they told me tales of the family during the Civil War and the Great Depression and, and the war years. And as a child, I kind of absorbed all that and remembered all those old stories. And when I started writing myself, I found that I could write in different time periods very easily. You know, I didn't have to do a whole lot of research. And and um, so, you know, like uh, hindsight set during the, the Great Depression, 1936, and fears in 1946. And, and I've written a lot of Civil War fiction. So that's one thing that was, has been very uh, good for me is being able to draw back on their experiences and kind of put them into my own fiction interesting okay well there is a long road of trials and tribulations that they follow (laughs) as they trek through fear county that includes strange abominations of nature vampires and even cannibals (laughs) and their destination is paradise hollow which is an oasis of goodness in the middle of fear county which is where granny woman lives And Granny Woman has an evil sister referred to as the Snake Queen, much like the Wicked Witch of the West and (laughs) the Good Witch of the North in The Wizard of Oz. So uh, assuming you're a fan of The Wizard of Oz, which I'm sure you are, as Mm -hmm. uh, previously mentioned, listeners at home, I apologize for this question. I basically brought up a point in the story to kind of Shawshank my way into asking (laughs) Ronald if he's ever tried syncing up the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz. <laughs> no, I, I never have. I've heard of that, you know, for years and years. I do still have my old Dark Side of the Moon album from way back. You know? mm-hmm. So if I ever wanted to do it, I probably could. You know, I, I do have uh, Wizard of Oz on Blu-ray, so maybe I'll find some time to do that. One of these days. <laughs> well, do you know the way you're supposed to do it? Yeah, I believe it starts with the lion's roar at the, the beginning. The, the third roar. The third roar, right. We did it in broadcast journalism when I was in high school, mm-hmm. and it seemed it seemed pretty like it synced up pretty well. We only did it to the part where the uh, film turns to color and the song Money's playing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think maybe some of it might be just me wishing that it, it was, <laughs> you know, like – Using confirmation bias, like, oh, well, this part appeared right at this symbol crash. So, yeah, it's synced up. So, I don't know. I'd have to do it again as a adult. Uh, yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's more conspiracy-minded yeah. people that, you know, just like, uh, you know, the Sgt. Pepper album where they saying that Paul was dead and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Which, you know, I used to be heavily into that kind of conspiracy kind of stuff when I was younger, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I would like to sync that up and see what everybody's talking about because i know you can pull up youtube videos of that and not have to actually do that you know you can just watch it while the pink floyd album's playing yeah yeah just the one part i remember is when that dedication just materializes in a instead of dissolving it appears in sort of a dissolve uh, pattern um, mm-hmm. that comes in right as the music, the first song kicks in, you know, cause it starts off with those weird noises and then the music kind of fades right. in. But anyway, listeners at home, I apologize. I will move <laughs> on from this, from going out into the weeds on the Pink Floyd album. <laughs> so, uh, as they're making their way to paradise hollow, they come across a lot of obstacles. One of which is a brush with cannibals. <laughs> Now, what is it about cannibals that is so terrifying? I mean, obviously, there's plenty to be terrified about. But I mean, you know, you think of being shot, stabbed, tortured. For some reason, the knowledge that I'm going to be eaten alive or even after I'm dead is more terrifying to me personally than any of that. What is the thing? Why is that so terrifying? I don't know. Uh, You know, 
cannibals seem to be great villains, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up reading the Tarzan books and watching the Tarzan movies and Romero films with the flesh-eating zombies and all that. And I guess it's just the taboo of, you know, eating and receiving nourishment from your own can, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just downright sinister, you know. And it, and it pushes a lot of buttons in the human psyche that, uh, you know, other forms of murder and, you know, all that doesn't. So it just seemed like having the Gallo family and fear be, you know, a family of cannibals, you know, it'd be something that was totally out of the norm, you know, as far as what Jeb grew up with. So, you know, it would be terrifying for a 10-year-old boy, but, you know, it's terrifying for anybody if they actually encountered you know, a cannibal that wanted to eat them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, it's deviant enough to commit homicide, to, like, commit murder, but it's almost like they're so deviant they're going against their own biology by eating mm-hmm. their same species. Right. Oh, <laughs> it's weird. Well, there's also a scene where you showcased a very unique spin on vampires, mm-hmm. and that was... That was real interesting, the way you kind of slow burn that into existence. It was like, you're on guard a little bit, then a little bit more, and then you're like, all right, something bad is about to happen, and then it gets really creepy. But of all of the different variations of vampire, Bram Stoker's Dracula is my favorite. And if that makes me boring, so be it. But (laughs) I love the historical basis, the characters, and Dracula's plot driven by love. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what is your favorite variation? It's the traditional vampire, like Dracula. Actually, Dracula was the first. Uh, I thought you were about of... to say Twilight. No, no? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm not a sparkly. I'm not a sparkly vampire. I person. didn't think you were. I just wanted to mess with you a little bit. <laughs> but uh, actually, Dracula was the first full length adult kind of horror novel that I read. I mean, I bought it at a a book fair at school when I was like 12 years old. And I mean, it was a huge novel for, for a 12 year old to take on, you know, mm-hmm. but I loved it and it always stuck with me, you know, the historical aspects and the way it was laid out and like correspondence and newspaper articles and stuff like that. But um, when I decided to write Blood Ken in 1996, that's who I went to. I just, you know, wanted to write a traditional vampire story. And the vampire scene in Fear was actually based on a, a story called The Boxcar that I published in the small press horror magazines. I think it was in 1988. It was a story about these vampires that used the boxcars. They're like makeshift coffins. So I kind of borrowed that short story for this uh this scene in fear with the hobo vampires Mm, okay well when they finally meet with granny woman they find that in order to find a way to kill the snake critter they're gonna have to visit the snake queen and the snake critter has legs just like the serpent that tempted eve in the garden Mm -hmm. so I thought that was a real cool spin to put on this hybrid reptile. So was that a consideration you took when you created this reptile? And how did you produce the terrifying features of the snake critter? Well, you know, I didn't really make that connection when I wrote it, but I am a man of faith and I did grow up in the church. My mother had an old Bible that had like paintings throughout. And one of them was of the garden of Eden and the serpent was depicted as a serpent-like creature with these slender legs, you know, mm. clinging to the branches. So I'm sure that, you know, came in subconsciously. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of snakes myself. No, God, no. <laughs> uh, you know, I know a lot of people, they like to raise snakes and have them in their home, but, you know, not me. You know, it's just, you know, I've always had this uh, uneasiness around snakes and creatures like that. And, Kind of considered them, you know, evil, you know, basically, you know, especially poisonous, you know, like oh, yeah. rattlesnakes and copperheads and stuff like that. So when I kind of invented a snake creature, I thought, well, you know, what if it was like a half dog, half snake, you know, where it ran around on four feet and 
was about the size of a young calf or something like that. So I made that creature for fear. And really, like I said before, after fear was published, I didn't think anything about it. But lately, people's been talking about, you know, the fear mythology and, and how it's kind of seeped into other books and stories I've written. And and I can see where that's happening, maybe subconsciously, but right now I'm, I'm kind of consciously doing that. And actually, I've got a horror Western series I'm doing now called The Saga of Dead Eye. And they actually, at one point, go through Fear County and encounter snake critters. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of incorporating this mythos into other works I'm doing right now. Mm. Well, so, I mean, I'm exactly the same way as you. I am not a fan of snakes and <laughs> reading the way when Jeb goes into the cave, the way he hears it before he sees it. And when he finally sees it, the, the description of it and everything just, I mean, it triggers the same visceral reaction that I would have if I saw a snake, I feel like is what I'm feeling when I read it. So does mm -hmm. that not happen with you? Are you so close into it that it doesn't trigger you the same way that it would someone that's far removed from it, like it's not coming from their imagination? Yeah, I, I'd say it was, you know, I, I guess mean, so. Are you putting down the pen every five minutes and like <laughs> walking around <laughs> to walk it off? Or is it you're like, yeah, I'm just writing this. It's I think this is going to be scary. No, that, I do get the creeps when I write about the snake critter. You know, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, especially when I wrote the novella Beneath the Branches. Mm -hmm. that was It was originally in the Christmas collection and I included it in the author's preferred edition. And when I wrote about the snake critter in the house that came in in the Christmas tree, you know, just kind of, I wrote it around Christmas time, and it was just kind of creepy, you know, <laughs> wondering if one might have <laughs> snuck in, you know. But, uh, uh. Yeah, but sometimes I do, yeah, you know, I do write at night. I don't write during the daytime and all that. Like, I thought I would after I retired, but my creativity seems to peak at night, so... I'll be sitting there and, and write something particularly creepy and get the shivers and <laughs> and everybody else is in bed and I've got to look over my shoulder. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> has your wife ever snuck up on you? Like you not meaning no. to not meaning to sneak up on you, but like you're just so into it you don't hear and she touches your shoulder and you freak no, out. <laughs> thankfully, she hadn't done that yet. <laughs> well, in the final showdown, the ending is bittersweet for Jeb. So do your other novels usually have bittersweet or sometimes dark endings? And do you think that any story that ends with everyone living happily ever after is compelling at all? Well, most of my novels do have bittersweet endings. Most of the time, a lot of the characters that the readers love and get attached to don't survive. You know, <laughs> uh, you know there's always an element of hope and triumph in my epilogues and but it's at a cost to the characters who do survive, you know. There's always something that they lost or left behind, you know, at the end. Um, my short stories usually never have a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they're usually ambiguous, you know. You know they kind of leave the reader to kind of decide what happened after. You know, I've had people say, I didn't like that story. I don't know how it ended. But I said, well, you know. That's how my short stories are. You know, they kind of leave you to kind of determine what happened after the surprise ending or something like that. But that that's sort of the nature of the short story anyway. Okay. Well, so the book comes with two novellas. The first one is called The Seedling, and it really made my skin crawl. Not, <laughs> not only because of the basis for the creation of the monster in the story, but also its genetic makeup, which I would... I would refer to as biological horror and the maternal or paternal instinct working against someone's best interest is really good fodder for a horror story. Mm -hmm. Are there any books or films that you think utilize that concept really well? Well, I'm not sure about other books and films. I know it, it's a common theme in some of my work. Uh, in 12 gauge, a father is frustrated because he can't, his inability to keep a job and support his family, and he kind of goes crazy and ends up as a mass murderer. And years later, his son becomes a serial killer because of that. And then, you know, 
in Blood Kin, the main character Boyd Andrews, uh, you know, he strives to be a good father, but the stress of, um, you know, fighting the system and everything like that turns them toward alcoholism and all that. So, yeah, I see where a lot of my books have like paternal or maternal protagonists that sometimes they don't always do the right thing, you know, and, and it uh, sort of uh, drives the dynamic of the novel or the story. Mm-hmm. Well, your second novella, Beneath the Branches, is one of your many creature features. Mm-hmm. Are creature features easier to write within the realm of Southern fried horror because of the fact that the stories take place in rural, heavily wooded areas where there's plenty of places for monsters to breed and hide? And if so, does the setting inspire the details and the, what's the word I'm looking for, disposition of the monster or vice versa? Well, I just think the South is the perfect breeding ground for like creature feature stories. There's, um, you know, wooded wilderness and you got caves and abandoned farmhouses and swamps, you know, down in Louisiana. And that's just a prime real estate for monsters you know? <laughs> and uh, the evil they commit. Um, isolation has a lot to do with that feeling of dread and realization that there could possibly be something out there that was out of the norm that you didn't expect to be there, you know, mm-hmm. maybe hiding out there for years, ready to make itself known. What's the uh, area that you live in like, or are you spread out, super rural, suburban? It's pretty rural. It's a rural farming community. There's not much to Brush Creek. It's mostly a post office and a handful of churches and a railroad track going through the middle of it. So, and I lived out in a little wooded hollow off the, the main highway. So that's pretty much the kind of places I've lived all my life is little small towns, you know, farming communities. Both my grandfathers were tobacco farmers. And mm. and uh, so I kind of came from that farming type of uh, places and stuff like that. My father was a blue collar worker in a tool and dye shop. So I came from a blue collar background, too. So, there is also the recurrence of another character in Beneath the Branches that was very unexpected. And I noticed in both of the novellas, the character of Hot Pappy recurs. Mm -hmm. Does he or any other characters recur in your other books? And if so, what is it about a character that makes you want to include them in more than one story? What's the, uh, what are the qualifications? Well, when I started writing about Fear County again after all those years, I knew I needed somebody who was kind of a connected character toward the old Fear and the new Fear County, which was, uh, I came up with Jeremiah Spangler, who was uh, known as Hot Pappy, who was the granny woman's grandson, mm-hmm. who had been trained to fight these evils like she did. So I wrote The Seedling. That was Hot Peppy's debut. And then he came back again and beneath the branches. And he'll be a major character in Fear Eternal when I have that finished. So I guess Hot Peppy's got some reflections of Roscoe in him. You know, he's kind of cut of the same cloth. You know, Hot Peppy's got problems. He's an alcoholic and... He was a ladies' man back in his younger days. That's why he's called Hot Peppy. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's the stress of knowing that he is the only warrior against Spear County that drives him to drink. So Hot Peppy's a character that I'm really looking forward to exploring and maybe fleshing out, you know, his history and stuff like that. Well, Fear, or at least this um, author's preferred edition, was published by Macabre Press. Zebra was your first publisher, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about your publishing evolution? Like, at some point, did you publish independently, like yourself, or were you always with small presses? Well, you know, I started writing in 1976. Uh, Originally wanted to be a comic book artist, and actually did comic books in high school, but I collaborated with Lowell Cunningham, who went on to create Men in Black. 
Oh, so, wow. So that's a strange connection <laughs> I had. In, Name drop. In high school. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so in my junior year of high school, I took a creative writing classes and journalism classes, and I decided I just wanted to strictly write fiction. And so after I graduated high school, I didn't go to college. I just spent my time writing and developing my voice and just kind of learning to trade. And it took 12 years before I sold my first short story. And I started selling to the small press magazines like Cemetery Dance and Death Realm and all that and making my name known. And then I got an agent and got into writing for Zebra Books. And later, when I came back the second time in 2006, Thunderstorm Books re-released all the Zebra Books in hardcover under the Essential Ronald Kelly Collection. And then I just started uh, working strictly with the independent presses, you know, Crossroads and, and Sinister Grin and uh, presses like that. And that's where I'm most comfortable right now. It gives you more control as a writer, and uh, you're really better appreciated. Your work is better appreciated, and you're better appreciated as an author, you know, working with the smaller presses, you know. When I worked for Zebra, I was basically just one in a many, a stable of writers, and you would write a book and it'd get published, and then it was like, well, go write another one. You know, it wasn't like they really made much effort to promote you or promote your book that much. They just put it out on as many book racks as they could, you know. But uh, right now, I'm very happy with being with the independent presses, and it just gives me more control. I have more control with what kind of covers I have on my books and keeping the titles because Zebra would change the titles of my books, you know. Oh, <laughs> I think Blood Kim was the only title that they actually kept. But, yeah, I mean – that's um, a badass title, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why would yeah, you? <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, you've alluded to it a few times. You took a hiatus from 1996 to 2006. That's mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah. Because of, I heard you allude to it earlier as the implosion of the horror fiction industry. What was the cause of that exactly? Well, horror got really popular in the late 80s early 90s, the publishers were just fighting to feed the frenzy. I mean, readers wanted horror so much that uh, the publishers were trying to feed the frenzy and they were signing on writers that wasn't seasoned writers and, and they were writing bad horror and very ill-plotted books and stuff like that. And the readers were buying them and getting burnt. Then they started slacking off and not buying them as much anymore. And and it kind of threw the mass market publishing into a tizzy kind of. And, and the publishers wasn't making as much money off of it anymore as they were. And they started letting the authors go and cutting their publishing lines, their horror lines. And that's what happened with me. Uh, Zebra I'd been writing them with them for six years. I wrote eight books, and then I got a call one day, and my agent said, well, you know, Zebra shut down their horror line, and that was my job then. I was writing full-time, so that happened to a lot of people, a lot of writers back then uh, that was making a living off these uh, paperback books they were writing. So um, it got to the point where the publishers were calling horror books uh, thrillers and stuff like that and trying to <laughs> squash the horror. You know, horror was, the H word was poison. You know, they didn't want any association with it. And so, you know, after that happened, I tried my hand in other genres and stuff and it didn't click and I got frustrated and I just, I just quit writing for 10 years. I quit reading horror for 10 years, you know, and, just raised a family and worked in the factories and just kind of thought, well, I had my shot and, and it's over, you know, so that was 10 long years. <laughs> yeah, It wasn't like I didn't still have ideas and stuff. I did, but I just didn't think there was any point because it was like I was going to have to start all over again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds horrible to still have all these creative impulses, but no output for it. Right. Oh, Wow. Yeah, so it sounds like the product got so diluted that people just lost their taste for it. You know, this is all yeah. watered down. Mm. Mm -hmm. Goodness. Well, we're glad you're back, sir. 
Thank you. <laughs> it's good to be back. Well, the covers to your books and the artwork on your website especially are awesome. And I know you started off doing comics. So do you do your own artwork or? Uh, about 95% of my covers are done by Alex McVeigh and Zach McCain. They've been doing my covers since I came back in 2006. Keith Minion did some covers for me when we, we did the books for um, Sinister Grin. And then Justin Teen Coots, who does the Splatterpunk Western covers for Deadhead Press, he did the cover for my memoir, Southern Fried and Horrified. So I do work with other cover artists, too. I did do a few of my covers. I did uh, Mr. Glowbones. I did the painting for that, and I did a couple of others. I did uh, Web of La Sanguinaire, the Spider Story Collection. And lately, I've started putting out these EC-inspired story collections, Haunt of Southern Fried Fear and Tales from the Southern Fried Crypt, and I've put some of my comic book art in there. You know, it's like comic book panels and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I am starting to incorporate some of my own artwork in, in my books. You know, I, I'm not going to do it in every book, but, you know, some of the fun stuff, like the short story collections, I do. Hmm, cool. Well, I saw on the logo for your online bookstore, RK Horror, that there's an artistic rendering of you seated typing at a mechanical typewriter. <laughs> yeah. Now, is that just for the picture or do you really use a mechanical typewriter? That's what I started out on. I mean, I think I started out on writing on a legal pad. And, and then my father brought home this big old black typewriter, you know, the kind <laughs> you see in the 1940s movies yeah. and all that. Uh -huh. He had one at work. They were going to toss out, and he brought that home to me. It's an old Underwood type. Really? And, right. Oh, the and, same kind Frank typed on. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, but the keys stuck and all that. So uh, I kind of graduated to a rural manual typewriter. And then I, you know, I kind of made the progression as technology kind of advanced. Uh, you know, I went from a manual typewriter to electric typewriter to a word processor to a regular computer, desktop computer. So I've used the gamblet of uh, writing instruments, you know, during my career. You know, the new writers don't know how easy they had it. All right. You know, <laughs> because, you know, we had to buy ribbon and rims of paper and and you had to make copies. I wrote the big door stoppers, so I'd have 500, 600 pages of typewritten that I'd have to make two or three copies of, you know, one to send to my agent and one to keep. And, and um, you know, you use snail mail. You didn't have the email back then. And and so uh, today's writers need to, you know, be thankful they've got what they've got. It's so much better than it used to be. So when it was printed like that, wasn't it true that if you made a mistake, you could draw a line through it and correct it, but you could have no more than 10 mistakes per page? Otherwise, you'd have to reprint it is that correct? yeah i think so yeah 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 and i remember i took a writer's workshop in 99 2000 and mm. i remember there was no like send a pdf it was like send a query letter then a manuscript and make sure you send it with something that they could mail it back to you in right otherwise yeah. it got shredded yeah yeah, yeah. So it wasn't that long. Well, I guess it is that long ago. I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, I was trying to get away with it. Well, what is your writing atmosphere? Am I looking at it right now? or No, this is my bedroom here. But uh, Okay. Do you have um, like a Ray Bradbury setup where there's ghouls I hanging wish from? I did. Damn it. I, I, used to I used to have an elaborate study, you know, with uh, all my collectibles and bookcases of books and all that. And then the kids came around and <laughs> and I had to surrender my study for uh, a bedroom. Uh -huh. But right now I've got a whole far side of the living room that's my study, my writing area. So I, I okay. use that. And my middle daughter is graduating high school, so maybe it won't be long before she moves out and I can reclaim my study again. So. Yeah. <laughs> but the triumphant we'll return. Right. <laughs> Well, I mean, you make a living writing, so do you keep a writing schedule when you're working on a novel, and are you ever not working on something? 
I don't really keep a strict schedule. When I retired back in October, I thought, well, I'm going to make writing a job. I'm going to, you know, start a certain time in the morning and, you know, have lunch and then stop a certain time in the late afternoon. But it hadn't worked out that way because <laughs> I'm, I'm basically a nighttime writer. So when the wife and kids go to bed is when I sit down to write and I write till like one or two o'clock in the morning. Uh, so take naps during the daytime because I need them after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I don't normally work on multiple stories and novels at the same time. You know, it's just uh, I don't want to cross influence the various things I write. You know, I like to finish a project and then go on to the next one and do it to completion and before I start something else. Okay. So um, when you finished, I guess you would refer to it as a manuscript, you don't take a break before editing. You just go right back into editing or right yeah, into I, editing. Well, I usually edit as I write. I write a chapter, then I go back and edit it. I kind of do that halfway through a, a novel, and then I go back and edit half the novel. I kind of jump back and forth. I don't like do a first whole first draft and then start editing. I, I just kind of edit as I go, I, I guess. Okay. Interesting. Well, where is the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this sounds good. <laughs> well, I guess uh, the idea I got for my story, uh, the nipples and dad's two box that was in, the essential six stuff. Um, <laughs> um, I was out in my shed rummaging through my toolbox, and I thought, uh, what if this boy was going through his father's toolbox and found a, a baby food jar that had some human nipples in it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, strange stuff like that crosses my mind from time to time, I guess. <laughs> so I went in the house and I wrote it down, and who can write a story about something like that? You know, so, uh, I mean, several years later, I found that slip of paper. I thought, what the heck's this? You know, <laughs> but the wheels started turning and I knew then how a story would come into place. The characters and the setting and, and what this baby food jar full of nipples would play into the story, you know, which I didn't at the beginning. So that's the way it is with a lot of my short stories. Sometimes I'll get a little germ of an idea and I don't immediately act on it i'll just write it down and then later on when i can kind of ruminate on it for a while you know i go back and write it you know flesh it out mm. do you write mostly what you know or do you have to do a lot of research and being that you're a horror writer if so do you remember to clear your browser history <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, strangely enough, I don't do a lot of research. Like I said before, when I write uh, historical horror, I draw a lot from the things that my grandmother and my mother told me when I was growing up. You know, back when I started writing, it was just all you had was the Encyclopedia Britannica and, yeah. and trips to the library. But now, you know, you got the information at your fingertips, you know, just immediately, which is a great help, you know. I don't really Google strange things that would get me in trouble with the FBI or something like that. <laughs> but uh, you get into some uh, storylines, you know, you've got to know some forensic stuff, and you can find a lot of weird stuff on the Internet. So I have, you know, kind of delved into some of that before, you know, like autopsy, you know, information and stuff like that. Yeah, my uh, fiance loves true crime, like podcasts and uh, vidcast vlogs, whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. And she was, she was telling me about this guy that was arrested. I think he killed his wife and buried her. But the police found his search history: how to dispose of a body, how to <laughs> how to dismember a body, all this kind of stuff. I'm like. That sounds like the browser history of a horror writer. <laughs> like I, ho I hope they're clearing their browser histories. I can see where if a horror writer was involved in a crime or was suspected of a crime, yeah, they, something they like that could come back and bite them in the butt. Yeah, bag, you know? all horror writers out there invest in a VPN. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like a lot of authors will burn out rather quickly when it comes to writing. 
Is there a secret to your longevity? I mean, there was a gap, but that's obviously because of the uh, implosion of the horror industry. You still had that creative drive even when you weren't writing. Mm -hmm. So is there a secret to your longevity or is it just pure love of the craft? Well, yeah, it seems like today's writers, they're really striving for like instant gratification, you know, instant publication, instant reviews, you know, feedback on their work. I just really think they need to just take their time and just strive to develop their voice and their craft and uh, not be in such a big hurry, you know, and to see their work on the printed page. It's a long process to be a good writer. You know, you got to develop your voice and you got to learn the basics and be able to construct a good story. And and uh, a lot of people get in their head, they want to be a writer and, and they just want to do it right now you know and like i said before it took me 12 years from the time i started writing to the time i got published and and um that's sometimes love it of takes the craft <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> one thing that motivated me was um in high school i had a teacher and, and she found out i wasn't going to college and she said uh, well if you don't go to college you'll never be a published writer and that just kind of put a burr under my saddle. You know, I, just, uh, I thought, well, I'm gonna I'll prove show her you. <laughs> so, you know, it took 12 years, but yeah, I did it and I'm still doing it right now. But I just think that everybody needs to develop some patience and uh, you got to have a thick skin and not let reviews and other people's opinions shoot you down. You know, uh, just uh, stick it out for the long haul and. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough gig sometimes. You just got to work through it. And, you know, you got to have that love for writing and that love for the genre you work in, you know, to get you through it. Hmm. Well, do you do anything outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Well, I read a lot of nonfiction. I don't strictly read fiction, so that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like to travel. Me and my family like to travel a lot. We actually went out west two times before COVID. We drove all the way to California from Tennessee and back and, and hit a lot of the national parks and, and stuff like that. And that just sort of expands my worldview. I mean, if you're sitting in a small town in Tennessee all your life, your creativity doesn't get stimulated to the point where you can expand your writing and all that. So that helps a lot. And uh, the older I get, it seems like, I have more of an open mind toward certain things, you know, and just try to spread my wings and go out of my comfort zone and write some stuff that I didn't normally write during my younger days, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, so taking such a long road trip like that, did you ever find yourself in any of the scenarios in your books? <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple of, you know, you'd get off the main road and you'd be in a little place where you know there was some abandoned buildings and stuff like that and oh and, god i wrote a book and, about this <laughs> <laughs> and people would give you you know some looks like you know you're really not supposed to be here you know so you just, <laughs> yeah there was two or three times you know we stayed in some lodges in in some of the national parks that uh it was right in the middle of the wilderness and you felt like they said well you need to take everything out of your car because if the bear smells anything in your car, they're going to rip your car apart. You know? Oh, wow. So that was kind of, you know, <laughs> so we travel like we're packing the, the move every time we go on a trip. So <laughs> so we had, we took like two hours completely emptying our van, you know, and this was in Sequoia National Park, I think. So, yeah, there's time or two we've been out on the road and everything, and it gets kind of spooky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kind of on the uh, the opposite note, is there anything that you avoid that you feel stifles your creativity? Uh, I think I don't like to read a whole lot while I write, because if I read other people's work, I'm sort of afraid some of their storylines or prose will sort of cross influence mine. Interesting. So, so I've gotten a lot of requests to do blurbs and uh, do like introductions and forwards for books. Mm -hmm. But uh, I usually do that in between projects. I don't like to do that while I'm writing because mm -hmm. I want everything that I write to come directly from me and not be influenced by other works. Ah, that's interesting. 
Did not think about that. Huh. Well, do you think someone could write Southern Fried Horror if they didn't grow up in the South? Do you think the audience would be able to tell? I think they could try to write it and maybe fake it, but I think people who read gothic horror fiction would pick up on it, that they it wasn't truly authentic, that it came from a non-Southerner, you know, maybe. Um, I think there's a particular rhythm to Southern horror stories in the descriptions and the characters, you know. It's uh, heavily drawn off of places and people that you've known before and all that, maybe a lot of family history. That's what I strive to put in my work and all that. And that sort of experiences and, and knowing people in situations like that kind of infuses into the prose, you know, and gives it that unique flavor that Southern horror has. Yeah. Well, do your, well, I almost don't even think I need to ask this question, but do your friends and family read your writing? And if so, who's your biggest fan? Well, my family don't read a lot of my writing. My wife's read a few of my books. She's read The Hindsight and Restless Shadows, and she's actually reading Fear right now. She's part of the way in the fear, because I guess so many people's told her she needs to read it. She's finally yeah. going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her I said uh, too as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, my kids, I mean, they grew up knowing daddy was a horror writer, so they don't, that's no big thing for them. Uh, my oldest daughter, she's read some of my work, enjoyed it. Uh, of course, I've made a lot of friends on social media through my writing, and they like my work. Of course, they were readers to begin with and, and then became friends. That's one of the few good things about social media is meeting your readers and developing a, a relationship with them, you know, as far as being friends and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, do you have any advice for aspiring writers that are suffering from a severe case of imposter syndrome? Well, Imposter syndrome is just something that naturally hits you, a writer from time to time, you know, even old dog horror writers like me, you know, <laughs> I get it every now and then. Mm. Uh, anytime you see your name on a book or, you know, you're scrolling through social media and somebody mentions you or your work or something like that, you know, you tend to think, is this really happening or do I really deserve this, you know, and mm. uh the answer is yes. I mean, you've put a lot of work into this book or the story you've written and a lot of time, a lot of uh, imagination, a lot of hard work. So if a publisher thinks it's worthy enough to publish, you should be proud of that. You're deserving of the praise that it brings and the admiration. So, you know, especially with young writers, there's always doubts about your writing ability and whether your work is up to par and all that. And some writers are hard word to accept all the praise and appreciation, and they're comfortable with it. But there's a lot of people that's not comfortable with it and still have doubts about whether they're going to make it and be able to sustain the audience and all that. But uh, I think for those that uh, have those doubts, just do your best and put your work out there. And everybody's got something different to contribute to the horror community. So, you know. Imposter syndrome comes to everybody, but uh, it shouldn't be something you dwell on or anything like that. Just uh, do your best work and see how everything plays out. Well, with the uh, this is kind of a dystopian question <laughs> with the advent of chat GPT and modern day technology that's geared to reduce people's attention span. What do you think about the future of the long form novel? You know, I think that the technology, actually having a computer in your hand all the time, smartphone is sort of dampening people's desire to just sit back and take it easy and, and read a book like they used to. You know, it's having information or entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 and at an alarming fast rate. I mean... There's a lot of young people nowadays, that's what their attention spans have gone out the door. And and my son, he's a huge reader, and he can read pretty large books, you know, in a couple of days. I mean, he's read the 
Lord of the Rings and all the Harry Potter books and all that. My middle daughter, she doesn't like to read at all. She's got some uh, learning disabilities where she doesn't retain knowledge like she should. She'll read one chapter of a book, and then when she gets to chapter two, she can't remember what chapter one is. But uh, but other than that, there's so much information. There's like YouTube, there's TikTok and everything coming at a lot of people now, and that's their entertainment. They would rather see small snippets of entertainment than really invest in sitting down and reading an entire novel, especially a doorstopper like I used to write, you know. I think that's uh, the appeal of the novella length uh, book now is, is it, you can sit down and read three and four novellas in the time that you would sit down and read a whole 500 page novel. So I like to read the novella length books too, but um, you know, I'm still an old school guy and I like to sit down with a big thick doorstopper and, and read it too. <laughs> gotcha. Well, what is the life of Ronald Kelly like outside of writing? <laughs> <laughs> well, yo, I did retire in October, so it's it's been a lot easier. You know, I've worked in a job for 22 years and I was stuck behind a desk all day and everything. And so now I'm, I've got more freedom. I can get out and do chores, do yard work. And, you know, I take the kids to school and go pick them up and all that and write in between. And I get, have extra time to read and watch my old monster movies. Nice. I've started watching the old universal monster movies all over again. So that's cool. And I actually got into model building again. I used to put together the old, uh, Aurora Monster Models. Oh. A, a kid, and nice. I've got quite a few of those, the reproductions of them. I'm putting them together now. So so I'm enjoying myself, and I like to travel. I've got more time to go to conventions and do book signings and stuff like that. So I'm using my retirement. Uh, as you should. As I should. <laughs> to relax and enjoy yourself. Be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your monster movies that you're talking about, do you have them on VHS? Yeah, I do. Nice. Yeah. Plus, you know, we've got Roku, and you can go on the Amazon Prime, and they got a bunch of the old Vincent Price movies and a bunch of the old 1950s atomic monster movies and stuff like that. Gotcha. <laughs> that I, I like to watch. Do you have Shudder? No, I don't have Shudder. Okay. If I had Shudder, I probably wouldn't do anything but sit there and watch movies all day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, well, Ronald, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. This has been a blast. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Uh, well, I've got a new book out. I've got book two of the EC-inspired Southern Fried Horror Tales. It's called uh, Tales from the Southern Fried Crypt. It's out now on Amazon. We actually put out the paperback and hardcover in the wrong size, so we're reformatting that and about to get it back out, but that's my newest one. And it's available in ebook. The paperback and hardcover should be available in probably next week, and so you might check that out. And uh, if you're up at the Hunt Valley, Maryland area on uh, Memorial Day weekend, I'll be a guest author at the uh, Horror on Main convention. So there's going to be lots of horror writers and horror directors and actors and comic book people, a mixed bag of what's great in the horror community right now. So stop by and see me if you're up that way. I'll have the Southern Fried Horror table set up with a lot of my books so uh, just stop by and say howdy nice alright listeners at home all links are in the description and Ronald thank you again for joining me thank you I appreciate it and thank you to everyone that tuned in if you enjoyed the episode please be sure to sign up for the free email newsletter by clicking the link in the description be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will have two guests that are the co-authors of an amazing work of gothic horror. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, 
Thank you for listening. See you next time. I can't accept the loss. I'm hard-headed. There's a little bit of madness to my method. Many falling off that fine line that I'm treading. I risk anything to be great and I'm not letting nobody rob me of my victory. Number one, that's what I'm meant to be. By any means, only thing that makes sense to me. I can make nice or make history. I got that dog in me, yeah. Turn me up. Big energy, got the crowd going up. I got that dog in me, any up. I take on anyone, I don't need a one on one. I got that dog in me, yeah. I'm talking all right, no bark. I could rip your squad up. I got that dog in me, so what's up? I told him move over, enough of that mediocre I've been The man since cruising around in the stroller I got ice in my veins like a cut in Minnesota Why not show you how I'm built, come a little closer A lot of heart, been smart, aura got a glow We can restart, give head stars, still get the same result I'm about mine, don't you get it confused I'ma win, win again, yeah that's all that I do I got that dog in me, yeah, turn me up Big energy, got the crowd going up. I got that Could rip your squad apart.